Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wisher. It's my very great pleasure to welcome you to this morning's event sponsored by the Times newspaper. Our guest this morning is one of Australia's, uh, one of Britain's favourite Australian imports, a, a literary historian, a lifelong feminist who's never given much of a 4X for uh, letting our critics know exactly where they're going wrong. <laughs> In addition to the many books she's written chronicling the female condition, she is, of course, a regular media contributor. Who could forget that most penetrating of horticultural columns penned under the pseudonym Rose Blight? <laughs> but more importantly, in the context of today's event, she has a lifelong fascination with Shakespeare, about whom she's lectured all over the world. The ethic of love and marriage in his early comedies was the subject of her PhD. Which topic brings us neatly to the heroine of her latest examination of the bard's life, in which she attempts to prize the facts from the mythology surrounding his wife, Anne Hathaway. One commentator observed of uh, our guest that she's a diva, a glorious, melodramatic, chaos-making performer. <laughs> Please fasten your safety belts and welcome Jeremy Greer. Thank you for most of that. <laughs> I hope I don't bring chaos where there was order. Um, but there's no harm in disrupting order, which is itself spurious. I used to say to my students that confusion is the most fruitful state of mind. That if you arrive at easy certainties, you've actually missed the point of intellectual endeavour. Now, all the time I was teaching Shakespeare, it would never have occurred to me to start suggesting that the current uh, notions about Shakespeare's wife uh, were based on nothing in the way of evidence and a huge amount of prejudice, maybe don mainly donish prejudice against women. Remember that I went to Cambridge at a time when there were, special, there were tutors who refused to actually teach women at all. So I guess I imbibed the usual view. It would have been just too girly to have said, excuse me, but isn't it possible that Shakespeare married a human being? Um, isn't it possible that the smartest man who ever lived would not have made such a dire mistake as to have married a complete drone who was also a bitch, promiscuous, ugly, old, all the other things she's supposed to have been? I wouldn't have ever upset that particular apple cart. I was much too involved in dealing with Shakespeare's words, Shakespeare quay Shakespeare. And some of you may know that I am particularly unimpressed by literary biography, because I always say that the greater cannot be processed by the lesser without coming out in reduced form. <laughs> Pellets, you might almost say. And so I wouldn't have read the slew of biographies of Shakespeare. It is extraordinary how every year another one comes out and all they do is recycle the same old material. And they never go any further. They never look at the social history of the Tudor period, which has advanced by leaps and bounds since demographic history was invented. And Shakespeare is a man of the people, and we may assume that his wife was a woman of the people as well. So the more you know about the people, the less likely you are to go dreadfully wrong. 
Everything you do will be conditional. This, I actually love Shakespeare's Wife as a book because it's written in the conditional all the way through. Mainly we write in the indicative. And what happens to my colleagues when they're writing biographies of Shakespeare is they start setting it out as a story. This happened, and then that happened, and then the other happened, when what they mean is this might have happened, and that could have happened, and this might have been the outcome. Because normally you can't write a book in the conditional. It's too tiresome. But I think in this book, I might have kind of done it. Because it is constantly deflating itself. It constantly says, you know, there's no evidence for this, but there's no evidence against it either. Um, so let's, let's run with this and see where it gets us. And it gets us to some very interesting spaces. Now, what do we really know about Anne Shakespeare? We've known all along that when she died, she was 67, which means that she must have been eight years older than her husband. Now, as soon as you say that to a Don, that's his worst nightmare. <laughs> An older woman, my God. In our pedophilic society, you marry girlies, you don't marry women. But maybe Shakespeare was smarter than the average Don, and maybe he deliberately married a woman because he wasn't particularly interested in marrying a girlie. Now, to tell you the actual truth, the interesting thing is that when she was married at age 26, Anne Hathaway was just about the right age to be married. We know that now. We've known it ever since Peter Laslett worked on the, the actual demography of the late 16th century. She was the right age. The person who was the wrong age was the groom. Shakespeare was extraordinarily young. Why did he want to get married so young? I really don't know. It is assumed, because it is the absolute overriding fear of the usual Oxbridge-type don, that his brilliant young men will be seduced by designing women and turned into wage earners and go and work in a bank because this is what they are desperate to stop happening. It assumes that Shakespeare got entrapped by a designing woman. And she's actually written about it in these terms. We have no evidence that she was a designing woman. Now, if she was a designing woman, was Shakespeare a catch? What did she get with Shakespeare? Answer, nothing <laughs> but Shakespeare. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, Stephen Greenblatt says, oh, she couldn't read. The chances are she never was able to communicate directly with her husband at all, and everything had to go through a go-between. <laughs> everything. <laughs> Who was the Earl of Southampton? No, I'm sure he... <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't say that. That's not fair. Sorry, Stephen. Stephen and I were at Cambridge together, so I consider myself entitled to give you a bit of a roasting every now and then. What are the chances that she could read? Now, some of you may have seen today's Guardian, in which I talk about that briefly, that she comes from a Puritan family. Her brother could read and write. He became a church warden of Holy Trinity in Stratford-upon-Avon. And the chances are that she could read but not write. Now, it's, it takes a bit of understanding, which I don't think Stephen quite has, to realize that literacy is actually two contrasting skills. Reading is one thing. Writing is another. You can't learn to write in the late 16th century without a considerable investment of time, energy, and money because you've got to write on something. You've got to have pens. You've got to have ink. You've got to have paper. Now, you can begin to learn to write in your horn book, 
but that's relatively expensive. Or you can learn to write on a slate, but that won't get you very far when it comes to actually writing things like letters. But on the other hand, it's easy to learn to read. You can teach a three or four-year-old to read if you know how to go about it. And the important thing about reading in the late 16th century is that it gave you access to the Word of God. People really believed that the Bible was the, ordain the text ordained by God, a divinely sanctioned text. And it is extraordinary, if you remember reading uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, how often the martyrs actually argued for a text, insisted on words, and died for a form of words. This is an extraordinary time in our history, and it's very likely that Anne would have learnt with all the other children who were free during the long winter season when there was nothing for the children to do in the fields that she would have learnt to read. It's a nice thought that perhaps Shakespeare, finding her unable to read, decided to teach her to read. What a good way to woo someone. I seem to remember it happens in a few plays. I seem to recall teaching is kind of sexy. Uh, when Rosalind teaches Orlando how to make love, that's a pretty sexy interchange, especially as they're both supposed to be boys at the time. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that Anne cross-dressed for this exercise. So we know her age. We also found out inconveniently in the 19th century that she was pregnant when she was married. And this meant that all the dons just said, that's it, she was obviously a complete slag, she was obviously the town bike, and there was, there was Shakespeare, hello trees, hello sky, and this wicked girl lifted up her skirt, and that was the end of his chances of happiness. Not. If they'd even read the ordinary registers of Holy Trinity Church, Stratford-upon-Avon, it's not exactly rocket science, is it? You want to find out how many brides were pregnant in, in Stratford? Just read the registers, read when they got married, read when their children were baptised. Some of them are lost to follow up because they would have moved out of Stratford and gone to live in their husband's villages and on their husband's farm, so we don't know quite what happened to them. We're left with about two-thirds of the girls who were married in Stratford in the same year as Anne, and I think it's about one-third of those, I'm not very good with figures, but I think it's one-third of those who gave birth within nine months, and some within three months. And they talk about, oh, she was heavily pregnant, oh, for heaven's sakes. She was about 14 or 16 weeks. She wore a wooden stomacher that made the front of her dress as flat as a board. And the women all wore those. I don't know quite why. I think they thought if they let them free, their tripes would fall out. So they kept them <laughs> tightly packaged in these bits of wood, like a cheese, you know. Um, so she wouldn't have looked pregnant. And even if she had, it wouldn't have been a disgrace. It's just not a disgrace at all. It would have been a disgrace if she'd given birth illegitimately. And again, the scholars say stupid things about that. If you actually gave birth without a father acknowledging responsibility for that child, the chances are you would be driven out of the parish, out of Stratford, driven along the lanes. No one would take you in because the parish would have to pay the costs of raising your child. So that pregnant women gave birth in ditches by the roadside and died. 
Yet somehow they say, oh, pregnant um, illegitimacy is no stigma. Wrong. It's a terrible stigma, and it's a stigma for the woman. The man who acknowledges his child, by the way, will get custody in Elizabethan England. She will have the child until it is weaned at age one or so, and then he will take over the child. So to name a father was to lose the child. So it's more extraordinary then that we have women who bravely refuse to name a father. There must have been some who probably didn't know the father, but I think that's fairly unlikely. So Anne doesn't come, is not by any means uh, a loose woman. We can't prove that from the fact that she was pregnant. Um, what, we can, what we ought to do is think about the circumstances that were prevailing. Uh, her father had died. The death of her father might have meant that an ongoing marriage negotiation collapsed. And sometimes the only way to get a marriage going is to initiate a pregnancy. It happened twice to maids of honour of Queen Elizabeth because Elizabeth never gave permission for her maids of honour to be married. One of the ways of forcing her hand was to start a pregnancy. The Earl of Southampton did it, and so did Sir Walter Raleigh. And that's going to be a film this year, I think, about Beth Throckmorton and that love story. So it's very possible that the pregnancy is part of a love story. And it seems to me also possible, I wouldn't argue strong, more strongly than that, that what Anne loved about Shakespeare was precisely his eloquence. He only had poetry to woo her with. In every single Shakespearean play, every single Shakespearean lover woos with poetry. Why wouldn't Shakespeare? I mean, how perverse can it be to say, oh yes, he wouldn't have done that. Every, he thought everybody else did, but he wouldn't have done it. All I say is, perhaps he did. And interestingly, even the dons have come round to thinking that one of the sonnets is about Anne Hathaway. Once you open the door, that chink, then you inherit the whirlwind. If one is addressed to her, why not more? And which ones would they be? And how would they be expressed? Now, I had a go at that, and you can read that argument in the Sunday Times. Um, not in the Sunday Times, beg your pardon, in the Guardian. Um, <laughs> I've got a bad conscience about the Sunday Times because I think they're going to run my Diana piece, which means I shall have to go into hiding. <laughs> so it's kind of on my mind a bit. I'm having to, I'm going to have to invest in a bulletproof vest. Uh, you can't suggest anything bad about Diana, not now. Um, so, so what's the next thing we know about her? Uh, we know about the second best bed, I suppose. Now, the second best bed is, let's face it, it is a problem. What is it doing in the will at all? The will is such a terrible document. And some of you will be, I mean, the great thing about this book is it opens new possibilities for research. We can start looking for things we've never to bothered to look for before. Now, what I've argued here is that that will makes sense only if there was a marriage settlement for Susanna. It looks as if what happened went a bit like this. Susanna was made her father's sole heir. John Hall, you remember she married a man, a doctor. Well, actually, doctor is a bit of a query in itself. Somebody called John Hall. John Hall was the second son of a doctor in London. And that doctor made him his sole legatee, disinheriting his elder brother. Now, this has all the hallmarks of a marriage negotiation. 
that William Hall says to Will Shakespeare of the King's Men, look, I want to marry my son. Uh, I want to marry him well. I'm going to give with him, this is, it takes a long time to do these negotiations. I'm going to give with him my property in London, uh, my books, and indeed all my movable possessions. I want you, if you do the same for your daughter, then it's a match. Now that may seem very odd to us, but in fact it was normal in Shakespeare's England for marriages to be preceded by negotiations whenever there was any property to dispose of. The, the wife, the bride, had to be protected in the, event of her, in the event of her being widowed and her children had to be protected in the event of her dying and her husband taking another wife and so on. These things were thrashed out by friends, they were called. It's almost a technical term. And they would act as negotiators, agents and trustees. Now some of you may remember that Shakespeare did this job. He did this job in the case of the marriage of Stephen Bellot with the daughter of the tire maker Christopher Mountjoy. Shakespeare was in charge of the negotiation in that case. When the dowry was not paid, there was a case at law and Shakespeare was in the court of requests and Shakespeare was called upon to give evidence about the negotiation because that's, that was his responsibility as a literate person helping with this particular negotiation in which there was property to be disposed of, he should have told the court what the terms of the agreement were. It's very strange that he couldn't remember. He claimed not to be able to remember. He was called for a second appearance and didn't appear. Now this is not unusual, or what is unusual is, is his behaviour as the trustee. But the actual situation itself is not all that unusual. So we get a situation where Susanna gets married in the summer of 1607 against a background of the most tremendous uproar in the, Western in the West Midlands. Now one of the odd things about the way people write Shakespearean biography is that they never look at what's going on in Stratford. What had been happening in Stratford all through the 16th century is enclosures, massive enclosures, depopulation, most of it already accomplished by the time Shakespeare is born. But when the price of corn begins to rise in a time of scarcity, the landlords, who like landlords always want to turn land into money, whereas the people want it to be livelihood, uh, the landlords start enclosing common lands in order to plough them and grow corn. There's a tremendous battle in the Midlands that actually breaks out into the Great Midlands Revolt of the summer of 1607, in which there was fighting in the streets. And interestingly, women and children were involved in these battles because women and children could sometimes do things that men could not do. Unless, of course, a man was supposed to be directing them, in which case the man served the sentence on their behalf. It's all long and very complicated. It's against this background that Susanna marries in that terrible summer of 1607. And that too is an indication that this is set up. Set up. It's arranged. It has to follow its orderly course. Once she is married, all of Shakespeare's property is entailed. Now, in, it's involved in this marriage. What happens if John Hall doesn't get what he expects on Shakespeare's demise, we'll end up with a case in Chancery. 
And those of you who've read your Dickens know what happens when you have a case in Chancery, everybody ends up penniless. So what Francis Collins, the lawyer, is trying to do in that will is make sure that the marriage settlement is inviolate. So practically everything that is said is a reiteration of the terms of Susanna's entitlement and John Hall's eventual right to Shakespeare's estate. That leaves poor old Judith out in the cold. Um, in fact, though, Judith ma makes a better marriage than, than Susanna does, partly because I think she married for love. But to find out that story, you have to read the book. <laughs> so there is Shakespeare, very ill. Now, one of the dreadful things I suggest in the book, and there's going to be a fuss about that, is that the likeliest cause of Shakespeare's death is, I'm afraid, syphilis. Contracted when he was a young man in London at a loose end, uh, the, the generic patient of the great clap doctors and pox doctors is called a youth, a young man. Men in middle age are, one hopes, smarter than to re have recourse to the kind of woman who would infect you. Um, Shakespeare, the way Shakespeare's illness develops, the fact he knows he's dying six months before he dies, and also the thing about moving his bones. If he had had syphilis, there'd be one way you could tell, and that would be by examining his bones, because in that, at that stage of development of the disease, there were ulcers in the shin and in the thigh that ate right into the bone. And this, is, this would be a sign we could read even now if we found Shakespeare's skeleton. But we won't find it. It's not there, in my view. So the second best bet, let's think about it. Now what I'm hoping, but I, you can't, I haven't proved the case at all, but I've suggested it, is there is a thing called widow bed in the 16th century. And a widow is entitled to her bed she also might have her widow's coffer. There was a custom in certain parts of the country where a widow was allowed to take away a coffer containing her own possessions, her clothes, her needles, her Bible, her shoes, and any other objects of importance to her. Not everything appears in wills. No one ever mentions jewellery in English wills. Yet presumably people had wedding rings and never say where they're going, not to mention other jewels. Because these are portable property given by personal bequest. Usually women give personal bequests. And they usually give them on their deathbed. And they usually have a list of people. You know, you to have my pearl earrings, you to have my silver warming pan, you to have my Bible, and so on. And these are outside the frame when it comes to what's being left in the official will. Uh, most women, of course, unless they're widows or unmarried, married women cannot leave a will because their property belongs to their husband. Anne would have left a will as a widow, and I don't give up hope that one day we'll find it. None of Shakespeare's family left wills, which is extraordinary in itself. Dreadful thought. They seem to be the most dysfunctional family ever, the Shakespeare family. They were hopeless. So the second best bet 
The best bed in a house like New Place is for high-ranking visitors. We know that Anne ran it as um, accommodation for high-ranking visitors because Thomas Green, a middle Templar and later town clerk of Stratford, lived in her house for more than 10 years. He brought his wife home to her house. Two children were born in that house and they're called Anne and William. When it came time to move on, which was when it looked as if Shakespeare would retire to the country, Thomas Green had to find another house. And we have in his memoranda a remark that he was minded to let the tenant remain in his new house, called St Mary's House, because he might stay another year at New Place. Which means, that, to my mind anyway, that at New Place he was very well accommodated. He was very comfortable. That means, what I've argued about Anne from go to woe, is that she was a very capable woman. And she made money as a capable woman. And all those little bits of financial dealings we know about Shakespeare in the later years of his life were not his, but hers. She was the one who was selling malt. She was the one who was holding and lending money. And in doing that, she was behaving like the whole class of well-to-do uh, women and widows in particular to which she belonged. So what happens then in that will? Why does he suddenly mention the bed? I think because he he realised it is probably the bed he's actually in, and it's probably hard to remember that when you're busy dying, uh, but it's also the bed that is theirs. Beds are enormously important in Elizabethan wills. Beds, it's a bit like leaving the Rolls Royce, leaving the bed. The bed is built in situ, it's not a, a movable piece of furniture, with its hangings and carvings and its feather beds and its covers, its linen, it is worth a fortune. Shakespeare realised at some point in this very painful business, he began to write to have the will written for him in January. In March he attempted to have it redrafted, but he only got as far as the first page. And a month later he was dead. So that interleaving to make sure that she had as part of her widow, that she actually had her widow bed. And because this is custom, it's not always enshrined in the documentation. So, did he love his wife? Does any man love his wife? Does any wife love her husband? You know, I said to you that she was a capable woman. My, my decision on this was a very easy one to make. I decided she was capable because she bore twins in 1585 and she kept them alive. That was so difficult to do, to actually institute breastfeeding for two small children, they, uh, for two newborns, and they are not identical twins. The chances are that there would be discordancy between them. My own belief is that um, Hamlet was smaller and weaker and the second born, and he might even have been carrying a birth injury which might explain why he dies in adolescence. But most of the twins born in, in Warwickshire in that period went into the ground within a week or two of being born. Now you have to add to that the difficulty of actually setting up feeding for them and so on. You have to add to that um, 
the fact that she would be exhausted after a double labour for which there would have been no palliative care. I've actually found an entry in a woman's diary of the, a slightly later period, about 40 years later, saying, I dread the thought that I'm carrying twins. The thought that I go through the agony and then they tell me I have to do it all over again. I'm frightened unto death. I cannot face this. I can't do it. In the end, she had one child and that child was born dead. Now, you know something about mortality in this period, infant mortality. For me, the idea that Anne bears her twins and keeps them alive, but also that she kept herself. Shakespeare had no trade. He's not recorded as being economically active anywhere. So somebody is putting food in the mouths of those children. And most people think that Shakespeare left when some think he left before she went through her double labour. Some think he left immediately after. It would have been very dimly regarded if he'd done that. Um, and indeed, if she had protested, he would have been a fugitive from justice and they would have brought him back to look after his family. If there was no plea to the vicar's court, if there was no scandal, it's because she didn't make it. That's why I think of her as the silent woman of Stratford. And I think she married Shakespeare for the only reason there was. She married him for love. And she endured all the loneliness that came after that, all the disappointments and the humiliations. Remember that Shakespeare in his own time was a bestseller, not for the plays, but because of Venus and Adonis, which was the housewife's pornography. It was the luscious marrow bone pie that every lady kept by her bedside so that she could read herself asleep or somewhere nicer. And that would have been hard to take. Even if, she'd, even if the book was published in, in London, you know what village people are like, small town people are like. They would have put a copy into her hand just for the crack, just to see how she reacted. And I think she became very used to being silent and dignified. I can't, but I still also believe that when he finally came home to die, it was as if he'd never been away, because the belief is in the spiritual nature of marriage. It's not the same as friendship, it's not the same as being in love. It's something very important to the Puritan reformers. Your wife is the most important relationship you will ever have. And it seems a strange thing to say now, but I think the chances are, not that Shakespeare was a Catholic, I think that's a ridiculous position to take, I think he was more likely Puritan in the 1590s sense, that he was a religious reformer in that sense. And that one of the reasons that he left the stage so bitterly disappointed is that the Great Reformation was running down. We have the Whitgiftian movement, the Laudian movement, and we have the beginnings of schism that will tear the country apart that he left the country worse than he found it, and that he would have taken this personally. He would have felt himself a failure. And the person who decided the most revolutionary suggestion in this book is that in order to publish the folio, now remember the folio doesn't have Venus and Adonis or the Rape of Lucrece in it. That's an odd thing because 
Ben Jonson's folio put in lots of non-dramatic work so he would appear a more serious poet. In this case, they're not there. The sonnets aren't there either. The plays are there. And the plays are there in what I take to be an already edited form. Now, what I argue in this book, and they're going to fall all over me, is that the only way the folio was ever published is that somebody paid for it. In, later on, literary folios would be published by subscription, where you would canvas the fans for money because they're so expensive to produce. In this case, Hemings and Condell were given money, I reckon, to produce the folio, uneconomically, because a very expensive book to produce. And nobody collected it. None of the great book collections bothered with it. A copy was sent to the Bodleian. When they got the second edition, they threw the first one out. That's how much they thought of it. And they had to buy it back again in the 20th century for a huge amount of money. <laughs> so I'm suggesting that there was an angel, there was somebody who was determined that the work that cost so much for her would not just disappear into the more of time. So I actually think that she gave the money. And part, part of the argument is that John Hemmings is probably from a shottery family. And Anne was born and grew up surrounded by Hemmingses in shottery. But there's more work to do on this. But just opening the door, just saying, you've never looked here, have you? You've never asked yourself this question. Now ask. And it comes up as as good an answer as any other. To make it a better answer, we have to know more. But it is somehow liberating to see, to actually consider the possibility that a wife made a material contribution to the greatness of her husband. It's something all of us who are wives would want to believe. Why is it has never been countenanced in almost any instance? You can have lunch today and think about all the literary wives you've ever heard of. They were all considered to be frail, faulty, and not worth the candle, uh, not worthy of the job they had. I'm, I'm going to start a new trend, which is to say <laughs> that the wives of great authors are essential to their success, whether the academic establishment has realised it or not. And we might as well begin at the top with the wife of the man of the millennium, and I just, you know, in the course of doing this book, I've got to the point where I really love my Anne Shakespeare. She is as unlike me as it's possible to be, <laughs> and I, the silent woman of Stratford, but I really do love her. <laughs> and I think that a new generation of students will take the clues that are scattered, the signposts that are all through this book, and will take them further. Some of my guesses will prove to be bad, and others, I think, will turn out to be right on the money. They're informed guesses, which I reckon puts them on a different plane from the kind of guesses, the kinds of guesses that we've had to deal with in all the new biographies of Shakespeare, that have simply taken on board this idea that Shakespeare loathed his wife, that he shrank physically from her, that she disgusted him, why do they want to say this of the man of the millennium? What is their problem? There is another case to be made which is, has at least as much merit. And for once, it has been made. It's been my luck to make it, but it's only the beginning. 
there will now be a whole lot of better information about Shakespeare's Stratford and Shakespeare's family than there has been in the public domain before. Thank you. Thank you, Jermaine. Just a couple of quick questions before we open this up to the audience. You've said here, and indeed you say throughout the book, that uh, most of the male scholars who've tackled this subject have leapt with Olympian ease to predictable and largely misogynistic conclusions. But given the, the paucity of the recorded material by Anne Hathaway, how difficult was it for you and your research to come up with what you call clues on which you could hang accurate possibilities? Uh, well, it, I don't think it was really... Well, I don't know if they are accurate. They're still possibilities. Uh, they're just less, less demeaning and less mean-spirited than the possibilities that are suggested so far. But whenever I thought, whenever, I mean, some things were obvious. The twin thing was obvious to me. Um, then the fact that at 26, she would have been a working girl. There was no way that she would be just sitting around like a Victorian miss or that she would be hanging around by the bus station, you know, seeing if, who she could get off with. I mean, Catherine Duncan Jones is a tremendous historian, and she is so mean to Anne Hathaway. And, you know, when Richard Quiney, who is usually thought of as a friend of Shakespeare, he wasn't actually, um, when Richard Quiney became um, bailiff in 1592, uh, no, wait a minute, 15, somewhere about 1592. The first thing he did was to rid the town of, um, what did he call, disorderly women. And that meant just moving them on. They would go into the taverns where the women were doing a bit of, you know, semi-amateur prostitution and out, 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 out. Because the results in terms of um, expense for the uh, borough were too great. By 1601, and this is the sort of thing that people like Stephen Greenblatt don't even pause to consider, Stratford, a town of 2,000 people, had 700 people on poor relief. You know, this is huge. And the, the poor old borough is doing its best to keep prices down. These are people, keep the expense of that down. These are people whose families have broken up under stress, financial mm. stress. So they've, they've been working in other people's households, those households have ditched them and so on. The, the disorder and the misery of Stratford in 1601 is incredible. And we still haven't fully taken that on board. C can we just revisit for a moment the circumstances of the marriage? I mean, it, it's a given that she was pregnant, not very, as you were saying. But what isn't a given, some, some um, biographers have suggested it was a casual roll in the hay, not with a prostitute, but with a, a chance encounter. You suggest there might be a lengthy courtship. But several people suggest that, in fact, two of her father's, uh, her late father's friends, more or less turned up at Shakespeare's door with a shotgun. Well, there's no evidence that they did that. Um, what they did do was ride over to Worcester and get the special bond that enabled them to marry uh, which indemnified the church against any ensuing complication. Now, to do, it's been suggested by people who don't know their 16th century social history that this was done without the consent of Shakespeare's parents. That's impossible. 
the consistory court would have demanded evidence that the parents were, had given consent to the match. Um, they've, I don't know why they think it would be good for Shakespeare to have attempted to avoid his responsibility. Um, why do they want to suggest that? It's very difficult to do. Uh, but it had been done. He could have done it. There were certainly women who uh, went into labour. And you know what they used to do? When an unmarried woman went into labour, the midwives would refuse to help her until she named the father. She would have to labour alone, as if she was in a hospital today, here in England, <laughs> here in, perhaps less in Scotland, there in England. Um, so what would generally happen is that the woman in extremis would name a name, but to do that she often lost the baby um, because he would eventually get it. Now in the case of a minor, you would expect the child to go to Shakespeare's family. That would have been a terrible mess and it isn't what happened really. Uh, shotgun uh, doesn't exist by many well, else, but well, that's not necessary. Pitchfork likewise. <laughs> Um, you can't really marry people under duress. Um, I, I've said that they may have been known each other for a long time. She may have been employed in the glover's shop. She would have been employed somewhere. Sure. And the difficulty, one of the difficulties is they weren't married in Stratford. They were married somewhere else. But we don't know where else. Now, if she was working in a household somewhere else, then that makes the role in the hay completely impossible because she's not even around. He would have to travel to where she was, either walking or he's not really entitled to ride a horse, but he would have to have traveled to see her. And also courtship in a town of 2,000 people is public. Once you start hanging around someone, now he could have started hanging around her when he was much younger. He could have done a Billy Elliot, you know. <laughs> he could have been, you know, saying, uh, traipsing after her everywhere, popping out of hedges, saying, hello, it's just me. And but there's a persistent suggestion by, again, mostly male biographers, that he was actually hanging around somebody else. And then, oh, well, yeah. and then because Anne got pregnant, he did the decent thing, etc. Well, that's, that's the Anne Waitley business. But the Anne Waitley business is pretty hopeless, really. Um, they want to say that, that the William Shakespeare in that marriage bond is the same William Shakespeare they want to say that um, it's a scribal error of in one part and not in another. You can't cut and mess about like that. And why does, why does it never occur to them that it might have been Anne Waitley who was the wrong one? Uh, because that's what happens to Thomas Quiney when Judith gets married. Now, Judith, I reckon, had been probably a servant working in the Quiney Mercery um, and... She had been probably there since the time that her husband, Thomas Quiney, was about 12, which was roughly the same time his father was murdered by the landlord's thugs, and had to deal with this boy who's volatile and traumatized, I think. And I think they were probably destined to marry, but she had no portion, and she was probably too proud to be married in her smock. Uh, but then, this girl, other girl turns up from the wrong side of the tracks whose sister's already born an illegitimate child and says that Thomas is the father of the child that she's carrying and the Quiney family closes ranks and Thomas is married like that. It's all beginning to sound a bit like your standards here. 
Well, actually, EastEnders is partly written by an ex-student of mine, so you might find <laughs> that EastEnders is sounding a bit like this. One last quick question. Um, you said at the beginning, um, you know, that people have said she was eight years older and therefore they assumed she was unattractive. You said, here's Shakespeare, who's the brightest of men. Why wouldn't he marry a bright, attractive woman? But this is the same Shakespeare who goes off to London and who is apparently, as I say, attractive, yet runs the considerable risk in these days of consorting with diseased prostitutes. Why would the same man make such a bad judgment call? Well, who knows? I mean, the, the theatre is in the middle of the stews. And some of the prostitutes are quite presentable. Not many, I may say. Um, and one of the things that happens in, in London in this period is that the number of prostitutes actually increases exponentially, partly because the borough authorities, the Puritan corporations, are cracking down really hard. And they are presenting people who get married after a pregnancy has begun, they're punishing them as if they had committed fornication, which in Shakespeare's youth they did not do. So Shakespeare writes more and more about prostitution. Uh, if you think of the language he uses in Pericles or the language he uses in Time of Athens or in um, Measure for Measure. And there's just this, he's transfixed with horror about, uh, at men battening on this fodder when they've got a wife at home. As he did. Well, as I think, but he, if he's, what, 21? He would have had to be 21, I think, when he went to London. Um, lonely, living in a tavern alongside the prostitutes. I mean, and getting drunk, whatever. I mean, it's much more like it happened then than it happened when he was, say, 40. That, that would be odd. Okay, let's, let's have the lights up, because I know there'll be lots of people in the audience wanting to... And you don't have to just talk about Shakespeare's wife, you know. It's called Meet the Author. <laughs> just don't, don't be too embarrassing, that's all. What you, do, what you do have to do, though, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd be so kind, is to wait till one of the two roving mics comes towards you and then everybody can hear the question. Who's going to start us off? Somebody on the corner there, thank you. Is there any possibility that John Shakespeare, Shakespeare's father, took over the responsibility financially? I mean, it's just another idea that maybe Anne Hathaway had some support. It's what everybody's thought. They've all said, oh, she obviously moved into the house in Henley Street. Now, one of the difficulties about the house in Henley Street is it seems to have, when John Shakespeare's affairs went belly up badly and he lost money at a rate that was almost incredible. He went from being apparently reasonably well-heeled to being really economically inactive in a very short space of time. The Puritan Brotherhood of the corporation kept him afloat for a while. But the other thing is that the most expensive item in any Elizabethan household is food. And you, you cannot really imagine a woman and three small children suddenly turning up in what remained of the house in Henley Street, of which part had been leased as the Maidenhead Inn. Nobody quite knows when that happened, but certainly John Shakespeare could barely take care of himself. He certainly couldn't have taken on four mouths to feed. So my assumption, and also marriage and setting up a separate household are inseparably connected in the 
1590s mind. Um, young boys and girls used to get pregnant, get married, so that they could get out of their parents' house. And they would make a house out of um, osiers and daub at, at every lane's end. They would squat on wasteland and so on. So you have people nagging about these young ones who uh, only do that in order to have abiding, to have their own place and not have to live under the authoritarian rule of their parents. So it's quite difficult to... It's, it's been assumed as the custom that married people lived in their parents' houses. It was absolutely not the custom. You couldn't, in fact, marry until you could set up a separate household. One way, again, to force the issue is to start a pregnancy, and then you would be able to have your cottage. I mean, all I say in the book is, there is a chance that Anne and Will enjoyed love in a cottage for a while. One of the arguments against it being a shotgun wedding is that he didn't just marry her and then clear off, which he would presumably have done if he couldn't stand her, that he stayed two years and she produced, oh, he stayed at least one year and three months. <laughs> and then she produced her second set of children. One of the interesting things to me is that given their lack of imagination, it's never occurred to anybody, any one of these dons to say, oh, well, perhaps the children weren't even his. Perhaps he married her out of pity. Perhaps they're some other blokes. Perhaps they were his boyfriends. I mean, why, why stop there? Why not just carry on? Let's, let's, there's, there's somebody put their hand up first right at the back there. I don't know who it was. In the blue gloom. In the blue gloom, exactly. Well, if they've changed their mind, can we have the, the person you were running to? Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Jermaine. Um, your thinking is fantastic. It's really um, energizing to hear the way you, you, your, your critical analysis and your, your perspective. The fact that you've been involved also in education and inspired um, people to, to you know, go on to greater things. My question to you is, how do you actually teach people to think? Mm. Uh, that's a really tough question because it's got harder and harder and we don't quite know why that is. Uh, that m when I retired from teaching, I had the repeated experience of students writing essays in which they hadn't argued their case. And I would say, look, you said here, I'm going to set out to prove da-da-da-da-da. And then there'd be the paragraph that says, I have proved da-da-da-da-da. And I'd say, but the middle bit isn't there. Give me the argument. And they'd say, well, what do you mean? Well, find me the evidence, put the evidence together, um, and talk about the possible interpretation. They couldn't do that. And you'll find more and more teachers worried about this. And I'm not sure that it isn't to do with the fact that we've been um, preventing young people from... Well, one of the things we protect them from is boredom, so they don't follow a train of thought they actually get very little time to think. There's always noise, there's always music, interruption, something. And if you look at even kids' programs on television, the jump-cutting and the cross-cutting is so rapid, uh, it's almost as if you entertain an idea for more than a millisecond, you'll be bored by it. Um, and it's got faster and faster and faster and faster. And I can remember years ago, 
being delighted at Sesame Street. And another teacher said to me, Sesame Street is the beginning of the end because it's making learning entertainment. It's keeping the kids diverted by the wrong thing. So they're not even aware that they're beginning to understand something. So that, that extraordinary process of learning, I, I can remember the day, I can still remember the day I understood long division. It was one of the most rewarding days of my life because I'd stared at them, I knew the method, but I couldn't work out why it worked. And then all of a sudden I thought, oh, I see it. I see exactly how that works. Um, and I, you know, our kids don't do drudgery anymore. Um, and drudgery is good for you. Uh, they don't do um, the development of thought. So the way you do it with them is to put pressure on them, to get them to defend their case. But it, that's getting harder. They say things like, well, what do you want me to say? And you think, oh, Christ. Hmm. Uh, there is, you know, what is truth suggesting, Pilate? Uh, and I found it towards the end of my teaching career exhausting and disappointing. I set up a project where we're going to deal with um, um, de la Riviere Manley, the, the 17th century writer de la Riviere Manley, who created a fake biography, indeed several, and who had a real biography as well. And we were going to do the blind men and the elephant. Everyone was going to make a presentation about some aspect of this multi-layered uh, biography so that we could eventually present the whole thing in its, in its complicated aspect. They would argue different cases and then we would sort of decide what is the animal that the blind men have been delineating. They couldn't do it. They could not assess the evidence at all. Let's try and get in another quick question. Is somebody at that side for a change up there? And, and maybe that lady there, if we, we, though I'll get my jotters if we don't stop in time. Hi. I don't want to get you into trouble, but you mentioned Diana earlier. I'm oh. intrigued to find out what your view is. Sorry, what did you say? Sorry, I'm intrigued to find out what your view is on Diana ten years after. You might as well get hung here as the Sunday Times. <laughs> Well, uh, no, there's nothing new in the piece that I wrote about Diana. It just puts it together in a way. One of the things I've always been puzzled by in her was why her whole life was such a mess. Why She made a mess of being Princess of Wales, but that's fine because the job is not doable. It's an insane job and every historically all but one of the Princesses of Wales has come to a sticky end. Some uh, stickier than hers. I mean, Caroline is the one who springs to mind, who is possibly poisoned. Uh, people rioted at her funeral, and the royal guard fired on the crowd. I mean, great. This family has a terrific record. Um, <laughs> but I was also interested in why she couldn't manage life after being HRH. And why people... I mean, it still puzzles me that she, she does that no-no thing. She sleeps with married men. You do that in Hello! magazine and you are out of the human race. You are beyond contempt. So she does it with Will Carling. We forgive her somehow, even though his marriage was in a very delicate state and it doesn't seem to have helped at all. And he's English. <laughs> Sorry. And then she does it with Oliver Hoare, the antique stealer, and who eventually realises he's in deep shit. <laughs> so he goes back to his wife. She makes, or has made, 
This is a very complicated woman. 300 nuisance calls to his home telephone number. And this is the angel that people want to crown. I mean, it's bizarre. I, I've sort of come to the conclusion that she was a devious moron. I'm putting it in its most unfavorable light. <laughs> but she was... I'm, I'm just about to save you from yourself because <laughs> happily for both of us, we've run out of time. <laughs> However, we haven't run out of time to talk to Charmaine because she will, of course, be going to the signing tent in, in a moment. You're going to say, by the way, this is a bit of a coup for the book festival. Shakespeare's Wife is uh, not yet published. You are the first people to get your mitts on Shakespeare's Wife. It's, a, it's an amazingly good read, and you can talk to Germaine about that, about Princess Diana, about Long Division, indeed, in the signing tent next door. But uh, if you just give us a couple of minutes to get out of here and go there before you arise from your seats. And meanwhile, would you join me in thanking Jeremy Greer? <laughs>